0: Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page.
1: Today we'll be chatting with some very sporty people, and one is passionate about sensible eating. So we've, first up we've got uh, Dr. Kristen Barton. He's an Associate Professor in Physiotherapy at La Trobe University. His research and clinical practice primarily focuses on knee pain and osteoarthritis, injury management and prevention, tendinopathy and running injuries. He's published more than 150 peer review papers in these areas. Kristen is the Director of a physiotherapy centre in Richmond called Physio Exercise Performance Centre and it comes under the name of Complete and this is a practice in Richmond. He enjoys people of all ages, helping them that is, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) fixing their abilities to stay or become more active. See I'm just, I'm out of sync today because I just am because I tried to ride in on my bike but The weather was and I had my clothes on and off and radio. Anyway. And then our next guest is Professor Peter Bruckner, who's a sports medicine guru, and he established the Olympic Park Sports Medicine Centre in Melbourne with a physio, Mary Kitsch. And Peter has travelled the world and looked after high-level sporting teams over the years, Melbourne AFL, the Olympic uh, Australian Olympic Team, Socceroos, Liverpool Football Club, and the Aussie Cricket Team. He's the author of the sports medicine Bible that is in its fifth edition now, called Clinical Sports Medicine. Over the past few years, Peter has become passionate about a passionate advocate for improving our health through diet and exercise. He's particularly concerned about the epidemic of type. To diabetes in this country and has recently published a new book, The Diabetes Plan, to complement his online program, Defeat Diabetes. Oh, so uh, they've got very special guests in this yeah. morning, haven't we, Dr. Kit Kat? No, I think you're a professor today.
2: Thank you very much. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, because we've got
1: two professors and Professor Tim who's panelling. So it's a professorial um, show today. Okay.
2: so. How are you? I am very, very well. Um, Professor Epi Pen. I'm very excited. We've got such a elite team this yes. morning.
1: Did, yes, and I'm sorry I didn't ride in because I could have. Oh, shown sporty how it's sport. as well.
2: yes. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Dr. Doctor, what's in the news? Um, This is, I think, a very interesting and hot topic I found, um, I guess, in pharmacology, and I wonder. Um, EpiPen, we were talking a little bit before the show about if this is relevant in physio and sports medicine as well. So it'll be interesting to see if our guests have any comment on this phenomena. But there was a very recent article published in Psychology Today, in fact it was published on Friday, about the placebo effect. Um, and so research has indicated that the placebo effect can be helpful for IBS, migraines, and oh, some What's IBS? Irritable bowel syndrome, Thank you. great question. Um, insomnia and some cancer side effects. And so, some studies have found that nearly 40% of patients with IBS respond well to placebos, even if they know that they're getting the placebo treatment or oh. the placebo pill, sorry, not a treatment. Um, but this doesn't mean that the illness is not real, but it reflects the connection between the mind and the body. Or perception and expectation. Um, and I kind of got lost a little bit down a rabbit hole of what the placebo effect actually is and what um, contributes to that. And that's a whole other debate, which might be next month's topic. Um, but anyway, so this article from Friday reviews that there's a trend that indicates that the placebo effect is getting stronger, especially in America, in the United States. And researchers think that this is contributed to drug advertisements, so direct um, consumer drug advertisements, is only, I think, in America and actually New Zealand. But this yeah, trend was seen largely in the United States, um, as well as increased duration and size of clinical trials. So I think this phenomena um, is being seen a lot in pain trials. And as the trials get longer in duration, pain often decreases over time, um, and so that could be contributing to the strength of a placebo effect. But now research is looking at a link between genes and responses to placebo effect. Um, And so one study in IBS patients found that those with a specific gene genetic variant, I did look up the name of the genetic variant, but I won't um, attempt to pronounce it on live radio, um, that they responded more favourably to and experienced um, greater relief of, from IBS um, in their fake acupuncture treatment. Um, and this genetic variant was also um, found to promote cancer-related fatigue relief in an open-label um, trial. So that means an open-label trial is when people know what they're taking, if they're taking the active drug or the placebo. So, yeah, what does that mean for modern medicine? So just to recap, they people
1: improve as well on active drugs.
2: Yes, yeah.
1: As well as placebo. Yes. And, and they know they're taking a placebo.
2: Yeah. Um, there was a study that they um, referenced in this article. I think it might have been to do with asthma. Um, and they found that there was a similar response to people taking the placebo versus the active in their self-reported symptoms. But when they actually investigated the opening of the airways, the active medication was actually... Um, increasing the opening of the airwaves more than the people on the placebo trial. So that kind of plays into that perception or expectation and how we perceive our symptoms and the psychology behind it. so I think you've answered my question as a psychologist. (laughs) What's the interplay here? Well, very, yeah. Um, It's an interesting, interesting area of um, research. But I guess, you know, people might be more, I guess, primed or biased into looking... You know, we kind of like want to look for things that match our expectations or match our stories or the way that we see the world. And perhaps we put a bit of blinkers on to things that might contradict our biases or um, expectations and don't really account for them. So perhaps that could be a little bit into it. I'm not sure if uh, the actual professors in the room (laughs) might have a different opinion or experience. Um, Professor Bookner?
0: Yeah, look, the placebo effect's been known for a long time. I mean, and there's no doubt it, it's it's quite significant. Uh, if you believe that something is going to help you, yeah. um, it uh, it will uh, in many cases. What's interesting now is that, and we've always assumed that that's when uh, people were blinded. The mm. interesting uh, thing in recent yeah. research, and there's been a bit of research over the last few years, showing that even when, as you mentioned, even when people know that they're getting a placebo, they're still getting a, uh, a positive yes. effect, which is really uh, quite bizarre. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it just highlights the, 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 um, the power of the mind in, uh, in so many things. And you mentioned pain. That's a, that's a yes. classic example yeah. of, uh, of the pain. And I know Christian's got done a lot of work in this sort of a area of, of pain and, uh, and um, you know, obviously exercise, but also a placebo effect. What, what are your thoughts, Christian?
3: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating from a pain perspective. A lot of placebo trials, if you look at pain, they often involve an intervention that we think is a placebo is yes. inert, but the challenge with a lot of these studies is the intervention isn't inert. Yeah. there's often has some sort of effect. And I'll give you a good example. Recently, there was a study published on knee osteoarthritis, which is my area, and it compared an education and exercise program, which we know is more effective than usual care for pain and function and quality of life. And they decided they'd use a watch used for a placebo in an injection trial. So they injected saline into the knee. And it was an open label, so the patients knew they were getting this open label injection. And the pain outcomes at three months and 12 months in those two groups, whether you got the education and exercise or the saline injection, which was the placebo, was pretty much the same.
2: Wow. Almost the
3: same. But then when you look at other outcomes, there starts to be trends that the group who got the exercise program were getting stronger. Um, There's a whole other range of other things to consider around outcomes. But from a pain perspective, that placebo injection seemed to help.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. Do you think there's any chance that if you know you're on a placebo, you can go, ha-ha, I knew the drug wouldn't work because of this scepticism about especially after the COVID vaccines or do you think there's any Mm.
2: Any inter- can you think that might have no? I'm not
0: sure. No. Yeah. I think people who, who go into these, tr- yeah. patients who are happy to go into the trial, generally would believe that it's going to work rather than being too... I guess if you're really sceptical, you wouldn't volunteer for a trial mm. like this unless you're getting paid lots of money or something. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: yes. Well, there you go. Very interesting. Um, so now we're going to move into my little segment, which we rotate. So this is our quiz section. So no looking. At I'll avert my eyes. No looking at the answers. Okay, everybody can ha- answer these these questions. You have to put your hand up really quickly. Okay. First up, I am a sportsman. I'm over six foot. I play a winter sport. I wear a jumper with markedly contrasting colours. I'm re- I've recently injured an important organ in my body. Who am I? Mason Cox. Oh,
2: yeah. f- oh. an important organ. Oh, thanks. Oh, sorry. It what... is to me. No, sorry. Yeah. What did they injure? The spleen. Spleen. Wow. Mm. Sorry. Just a sports person injuring an organ rather than a limb sounds are just different. <laughs> they like do a, often like injure that uh, or particular organ you are or probably an talking oh, about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there uh, no, does get injured. Uh,
0: the euphemistic <laughs> groin injury,
2: but uh, in
1: this case, no. It was a little bit above the groin. How
2: did they injure the spleen? Footy. Pain. Well, got like a, a knock n- on the uh, left side, okay, an elbow a, or something. Yeah,
1: got a nudge wow. and a bump. And there we go.
2: It's pretty. It's pretty yeah. scary, but
1: he um, he had an, a procedure where they put a clot into the artery, the splenic artery, and stopped the bleeding. Wow! So it was, he saved his spleen. Yeah. So he didn't come to my desk no <laughs> lucky him yeah he, uh, he, he missed what about six weeks yeah any, or i something thought like that? it was less might be less yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah, really yeah, improvisations yeah, like... are really doing well in the spleen world and then came back and played his best game ever what does that mean well i think they gave him a little performance <laughs> do performance enhancing, know, uh, performance clot. enhancing clot. <laughs> okay next question all right four additional you have to put your hand up to you, Peter. Oh, sorry, sorry. Four sorry, additional sorry, sports will be introduced at the Paris Olympics in 2024. Name two of these. Oh, I've got Ooh. them stumped. Um,
0: Christian?
3: It's just gonna be a pure guess. Surfing?
0: Yes. Well it's one done. of them. We've got four to name. But do you know where they're doing the surfing? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Olymp- no, this hey, is. Bizarre. there's no bonus points. Okay, you? okay. <laughs> I want a bonus point for this. Okay. The Olympics are in Paris. The surfing is in Tahiti. <gasps> wow. So you Jeepers. can't exactly yeah. go to uh, you know to the athletics one day and look at yeah. the surfing the next day. It's going to be pretty hard. Yeah, yeah you've got to pick your drag it's the small. island across
2: yeah, to Paris. Yeah, well, it's the French, I'm going to put uh, my French hand up yes, for a, yes, a Sport, um, um, um skating or skateboarding?
1: skateboarding. Skateboarding, two, two out of the oh, four. Great. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah we've got that surfing, wasn't, wasn't that skateboarding. wasn't Olympics? Well it was but they've now made it more, it made uh, it more significant. Oh, yeah, well, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh well yeah, that, yeah. that you know you didn't say yeah, that in the question. Exactly. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise I've been i, was a bit I had my hand up. <laughs> Okay two more. Uh, one is a dance what are the other ones. You might have heard about it in the news. Uh, dance.
0: Yeah, I'm an Olympic traditionalist.
1: Here. Okay, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, what's wrong
0: with Into athletics? Tug of war, what, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: tug of war, what else do you need? Tug of war yeah. used to be in the Olympics it back is. in the 1920s exactly. and so on, yeah. Bring back there tug of war, that's right. Classic Olympics. <laughs> Ever since okay. World
0: of Sport finished, we haven't had a good tug of war. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, break dancing. Um, uh, dancing. I mean, what's and... the world coming to No, here's name, one, obviously. here's one that you might like. It's called sport climbing. Yeah, oh, I don't mind sport climbing. Is that, that like bouldering? Was... No, I'm or, going up walls, climbing
2: yeah, walls. Yeah, oh like yes, that. Yeah, yes,
0: yeah, yeah. I don't mind okay. that, but okay. pre dancing, I yeah. don't know about that. Oh, all right. All right. All right. I just got my tickets the other day for Paris. Uh, yeah, I'm all set. So, uh, I have a son who's just moved to Paris. So, uh, accommodation done. Uh, yeah. Accommodation sorted. We got our tickets the other night. So, to uh, the Olympics? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you
1: being uh, a doctor at any stage of this visit? Not or this time. No, no,
0: purely spectator. You know, I've done done my Olympic doctoring, but uh, no, purely spectator. So, oh, okay. uh, I've placed. I've got uh, two sons overseas. One in Paris, and one. Los Angeles. So I've placed them for the next two Olympics.
2: Oh, great. They, they think it's just coincidence, but <laughs> in fact, it's yeah. part of my part of my
1: grand plan. You know. Okay. Third question: Who developed the hierarchy of needs?
2: <gasps> oh, I know that one. Yes, Maslow.
1: Yes. First
2: name? Mister. <laughs> 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 Professor. Abraham. Oh, Abraham okay. Maslow. Then, yes. yes. Okay. Wow. Okay.
1: All right. I've got one more. <laughs> yes. One more. Um, To the nearest ten, how many wickets did Shane Warne take in his lifetime? Oh, gosh. I'm giving you to the nearest ten. Nearest hundred? 734. 789. 789. What was yours, Peter? 734. Seventh closest. Uh 708. Okay, okay. Now we need to get serious. Had our fun. We've <laughs> warmed up, I guess, so they're not anxious anymore.
2: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We've got some incredible sporty guests in the room with us this morning Um, and first off we're going to hear from Associate Professor Christian Barton who is a physio at La Trobe University and Director at Complete Physio Clinic. So welcome to the show Christian, thanks so much for your time to be here this morning. Um, Just to start off with can you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got to be where you are?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks for having me. So, I'm a physio by background, as you said. So, I still practice clinically, um, doing one or two days a week, seeing um, various patients of all levels. Outside of that, I'm at La Trobe um, in the physio disciplines. So I do a little bit of teaching of exercise to first-year students, which is good yep. fun, um, and a lot of, lot of research related particularly to knee pain, knee osteoarthritis, running injuries. Sure. Um, and a big focus of my work is around what we call implementation science. So not just doing clinical trials to understand what works, but taking what we know does work and seeing if we can actually get it to happen in the real world. We have, There's a big gap between when we learn something in science and whether it gets implemented and if it does get implemented at all. Yes. And so within my field, I'm trying to support the physio profession to implement best practice care around exercise and education for different, um, different types of injuries. And then also a field we're working in now around injury prevention as well. So trying to stop those injuries happening in the first place um, with a particular focus in AFLW and the Great. community level, which has been fun. So how I got to that point, as I did a PhD, like a lot of us do when we go into academia. And I actually started off in a biomechanics lab and did some research there and learning about how people move differently with knee pain, trying to work out how we can change that and if it actually helps with pain. And then slowly as I started to go through my research career, I was doing some qualitative work where we would interview clinicians and patients about what they do to manage different conditions. So you might have someone turn up with knee pain, what do you provide that person learning that physios probably don't provide the things that we know work um, yep. and GPs don't and the medical profession in general. So I started to get quite frustrated with that and that led me towards doing more of the implementation science of behaviour change. So that stems from developing new interventions for, for trying to get things to happen in the real world to testing them to then understanding how they work and how we can make them better.
2: Yeah, fantastic. There's a lot of um, little threads that I find so fascinating that I want to follow up in that... Um that little blur that you just provided us. I guess I can absolutely relate to, I guess, that implementation frustrations coming from a psychology background and having the practice, um, yeah, you know, doing combining practice and research and seeing how there's quite a bit of a disconnection there. I guess why, when you were doing that qualitative research and found that, you know, physios are perhaps not providing that treatment that we know is evidence-based, what what's the barrier there? Why aren't physicians providing that? treatment?
3: Yeah, so I think there's there's lots of barriers. So if yeah. I use a, probably a really tangible example for people, and we were talking about placebo before, sure. around um, placebos in knee pain and knee osteoarthritis, we know that a placebo surgery is just as effective as a real surgery. So you yeah. can go out under anesthetic and they cut open your knee and then basically it's a toss of the coin, heads, you get the surgery, tails you don't, and they send you on the way, you do your rehab and you get better whether you have the real surgery or the fake surgery. So there's multiple trials I've looked at that. And then the problem is we have people coming into the clinic who believe because they've seen on the news that this person hurt their knee on the weekend playing football. They've gone straight off and had arthroscopy. So they see in the media that that's what I need to do. Then they talk to their GP and their GP's been trained that, yep, the structure's the problem in your knee. That's why you need to have the knee surgery and fix it up. Sure. The GPs and the surgeons give education to physios. And so they believe that that needs to be the case. And so there's this whole societal and cultural thing that we need to go in and fix something. But what we know is that those things that we find on an MRI or those things that we go in and do surgery on, a lot of times they don't matter. It's other things that are more important. And we need to look at doing exercise to get stronger, looking after our lifestyle, sleep, eating better, which I know Brookie will talk about later. Um, So there's all these other things. And so it really comes down to education of – the health professionals, but also education of community and society.
2: Yeah, yeah, fascinating. That's really interesting, the placebo operations, and I can see EpiPen's got a question. So more
1: comment. So you know about the book Hypocrisy? No. By Rachel Bookbinder and um, Mr Harris, who's a Sydney orthopaedic surgeon. So that's fascinating what you were just saying about, um, and it's sort of around do no harm and these people were having all these arthroscopies. So what's an arthroscopy? Arthroscopy.
2: Great question.
3: Sure. So an arthroscopy is a procedure essentially. So it's keyhole surgery is what a lot of people would call it. Right. So essentially it's very, uh, I guess... It's invasive, but it's a minimal intervention from that perspective, so keyhole surgery. And then with that arthroscopy, they would go in and do various things. So in these trials, for example, the placebo ones, they might find some tears of the meniscus, which is the softer cartilage in the knee. And so they'd go in and they'd clean them up and shave them and make it look nice again. Um, So that would be one thing you'd do with arthroscopy. But you can also do other things with arthroscopy as well. So one example in the knee space is you might repair an ACL. So you might take a graft and you might put a new ACL in as well. And so a lot of people when they...
1: And um, what's an ACL? Yeah, so an anterior, cruciate, <laughs> an
3: anterior cruciate ligament. So you see people, again, back to that news story, um, AFL footballer yeah. injures their ACL, they're straight in for surgery. Joe Bloggs playing football in the community injures their ACL and more than 90% of people in Australia will have that surgery as well. And that can be done through arthroscopy too. Yeah, And so the interesting thing, it's not just the clean up and that being um, potentially just based on placebo and recovery. We don't have good trials of an ACL or anterior cruciate reconstruction and a placebo study but we do know that if you have a good go at not having the surgery sure. a lot of people actually don't need that surgery yep. in the end too and this is not common knowledge amongst many health professionals yeah um so it's again it's that barrier around education yeah and just to touch on Ian Harris those people who are interested in this placebo I tell all my patients to do this go away and google Ian Harris the great placebo and there's so many brilliant YouTube videos of him talking about this and some of his research because he does yep. some great work in that space
1: we've even had him on our show Bright. He's great. Yeah, he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. And Rochelle.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, another thing you were speaking about, Christian, I guess, is your role with the AFLW and having a short-lived career in AFL myself, yeah. leading goal kicker 2019. Thank you very much. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> student company. Yeah. Well, uh, sporty. Um, can you tell us a little bit about – and I read um, in prep, I guess, for – this interview and i've seen you know in the news as well myself um the aflw players are much more likely to have to i think it's terror and acl have knee injuries yeah could you tell us a little bit about what's going on there why and what you mentioned i guess doing prevention programs in these spaces what what does that look like
3: yeah sure so If you look at the women's community football, the estimates are anywhere up to eight times the risk of the men of having an anterior cruciate ligament injury, so a traumatic knee injury, which typically ends up going on to have surgery. With or without surgery, the long-term outcomes in that population would indicate that probably half would have osteoarthritis in the next five to 10 years. So we're talking about young people. So these are maybe adolescents to early 20s, females, Mm -hmm tearing their ACL Mm -hmm. having surgery or not having surgery and half of them in their late 20s early 30s are going to have knee osteoarthritis they're managing so we often term this young people Mm -hmm. with old knees so it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, as to why the higher risk in females, there's there's lots of debate and discussion about that. There's a whole range of factors that could play a role. There could be hormonal factors around sure. menstrual cycle. There could be stuff around the shape of a female body compared to male, so a wider pelvis and that causing more stress. Yep. There's also the adaptation to being able to play the sport so yep. a lot of a lot of females coming into the sport later so they might have played basketball or netball or played other sports and then they're playing this whole new game which requires new skills so that would probably increase their risk as well so it's lots of factors i don't think there's going to be one answer to mm. that But what we do know from research internationally in other football codes, so Mm. things like soccer, Mm -hmm. if you implement an injury prevention program, and these programs typically involve doing some quality strength training to get stronger, Mm -hmm. doing good quality warm-ups to get yourself moving before you start training and playing – And then also teaching skills about how to change direction with better quality to put less stress on your knee, how to land better, all those things. So it's quite a complex package. If you do that for a few months and you can implement it ongoing through a season, you can reduce your risk by about half of those injuries,
2: Yeah, wow. which
3: is quite phenomenal. So a group at La Trobe um, led by Professor Kay Crosley, who Brooke and I both work with, and then some other great researchers, Alex Donaldson, Brooke Patterson, um, Andrew Bruder and a whole range of others went and started to develop a program specifically for AFLW. So Mm -hmm. co-designing it with players and Mm -hmm. admin people, a whole range of different people. And then they implemented it into the professional competition. And then we've been involved in a trial where – it's actually been rolled out to more than 160 teams across Victoria and rural wow. and metro, yep. um, and then testing to see whether it actually does reduce injuries. And most importantly, can we get teams to actually adopt the program? Because mm. that's probably the biggest challenge. I can't prevent injuries if we don't actually adopt the program. Mm. So my work in that space wasn't so much to develop the program. The rest of the team did an amazing job with that, but it's then to help with the evaluation of does it actually get implemented? Mm. And if it's not being implemented, what are the barriers to why it's not being implemented and how can we address those? And we've found lots of interesting things from that.
2: For example, what are the interesting things, yeah.
3: So one of the key things that we know that can prevent injuries is doing some resistance training. So doing strength, get your legs stronger, get your trunk and your core stronger. We know that's important. And the challenge is getting, and this is both men's and women's and any sport, really getting people to actually do strength training. You don't have to go to the gym necessarily, but you do have to put some time and effort into it. And so some contextual things in community AFLW is they don't really have resourcing. There's no gym for them to go into and do strength training at football training before or after it. They might not have access to a gym outside of that. So they're being asked to do some strength exercise where they've got to get down on the ground out on the oval. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds okay in the summertime. You probably do it, but then it gets a bit wet and it gets a bit muddy. Yes. And then you're asking them to get on the ground in the mud. And so very clearly comes out when we talk to players in our focus groups and coaches, they don't want to do it because they don't want to get on the ground because it's muddy. Yeah. Or they don't want to do it because they're going to get sore and it's going to affect their ability to train and play or they just don't have time to do it. So that's one example of where it kind of falls down a bit.
2: Yeah. Yeah it's really interesting um, I guess the the also the com, uh, not commitment perhaps but the adherence to physio plans post appointments more generally perhaps in practice um, are you in that kind of research space in the implementation yeah and w- what are you finding yeah. there Yeah
3: so one of one of the big projects we've been running for a number of years working with a colleague um, Associate Professor Joe Kemp at Latrobe, we've implemented a program to train physios around the country yep. to get them to embrace and provide education and exercise programs for people with hip and knee osteoarthritis. Yep. I think we've trained more than 2,800 physios now, so it's quite remarkable, and that's been provided now. I think there's around 650 sites around Australia. Varying different funding models, so some people can access the program for free, some people need to pay for private health. Mm-hmm. But our challenge there is trying to coach the physios to ensure that they can get adherence from patients actually mm-hmm. do the program because we know if they do the education, the exercise, that they will most likely get better. And back to the surgery, most people will avoid surgery if they can yes. embrace these programs, which yeah. so is really quite powerful. And our data, we have a big registry, shows that. But the challenge always then is, well, do you need to go to the physio clinic and do that program in a supervised setting, have the guidance and progression? Yes. Can you do it at home independently?
2: Yes. Can you just be
3: told by the doctor to go and do exercise and you'll do it? The last one never works. (laughs) But unfortunately, the last one is what happens. I think it's around about one in 20 people who consult their GP for hip or knee osteoarthritis get sent to the physio for support. The next challenge then is, well, what about the supervision? Do we need that? So in the program we provide around the country, GLAD, there are 12 supervised exercise sessions. And the reason that there's 12 is based on the data and the science that we know. That seems to be the minimum dose of exercise that you need in order to see a good chance you're going to get better from it. And so if mm-hmm. we do 12 supervised sessions, mm-hmm. we can guarantee that that dosage of exercise is done. So the analogy we often use is if you got given antibiotics by your doctor yes. and you took half the dose or a quarter of the dose and then your infection come back, you go back to them a few weeks later and say, hey, the antibiotics didn't work, Yeah, they just go, well, you need to actually take the antibiotics, and exercise is the same. So that's that's the way the program runs at the moment. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's a really, really nice analogy of the way. Yeah. To describe that, um, you've to- spoken a little bit about knee osteoarthritis. Can you tell us well what is that? Um, and you mentioned, I guess, there's the was it old knees in young bodies? Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact of that? Um, how to prevent it, I guess, and what recovery is like. Yeah.
3: So knee osteoarthritis affects people of all ages. So from that early 20s through to an older population, most people think it's an old person's problem, but it does affect all ages. Essentially, from a structural perspective, what we see is we see changes to the softer cartilage and the harder cartilage where you might start to see small tears and Mm -hmm. various things like that. The really important part about that is the structural changes that happen don't dictate that you'll have pain. So we see maybe more than 40% of people over the age of 40 would have structural changes and no knee pain. So that's important. So there's all these other factors that play a role. So you get inflammation in the joint Mm. and so that might drive and cause some of the pain. And that's often because people are doing too much exercise they're not adapted to do Um, or they're not doing much and then they suddenly get off the couch and do something and they get a sore knee. So they get deconditioned. So we see this phenomenon with knee osteoarthritis where, Really sedentary people are at higher risk mm-hmm. and really active people are at higher risk. So if I use the example of running, because it's a good one, and this is an interesting fact for everyone to know, yeah. you're three times more likely to have osteoarthritis of your hip and knee if you don't run compared to if you're a runner. If you just think about that for a second, what you, most people believe about running.
2: So you're more likely to have it if you don't run?
3: If you don't run, correct.
2: Wow. Is but, it is that because it stops people from they feel the pain and they stop running or what yeah, It's a what's great the, it's
3: a great question. So these are this is all cross-sectional. Yeah, what comes first? Work. Yeah. So you could make that argument that maybe the people who do get pain and develop it, they stop running. Yeah. Or the other argument is the cartilage actually needs some load to stay healthy. So uh, yes. if you don't give yep. it load, we're a living it's a living structure. So it's actually going to deteriorate faster if you don't give it load. And we know that from lots of research. You go to space, what happens to your muscles? They waste away. Yes. Everything changes. Yeah. The interesting part about it, though, if you look at elite runners, so they run internationally, run for money, they're at a much higher risk of osteoarthritis even than the non-runners. So you can do too much as well. So it's about finding that sweet spot and doing some. So that's, I guess, going back to what's the driver of osteoarthritis. And we always like to think, well, They might have these structural changes and have some symptoms, but what makes those symptoms and disability worse? And it's really complex because we know that sleep plays a role. So if you're not sleeping well, you're more likely to have pain and more severe pain. Diet plays a role. So if you're eating a lot of foods that are pro-inflammatory, that can make the problem worse. And equally, you can eat better and improve your condition a lot. Strength is really important. So muscle weakness means you're more likely to develop the condition um, and you're also more likely to progress and develop more severe version of the condition if you're weaker. So getting some guidance around getting stronger and doing exercise is really helpful. Um, The other thing to consider in terms of risk factors is that history of injury that we talked about. So mm. one of the biggest risk factors is having a previous traumatic injury to yep. that knee. That's going to set you up that you're more likely to have it. It's not a sentence that you're going to develop osteoarthritis too, and I think that's important for anyone out there who's had a traumatic knee injury. Yeah. Get really good support and guidance around how to get strong and stay strong, and then look after all the other aspects of your life. So if you have a high BMI, then you're more likely to have osteoarthritis and progress further. If you can manage your BMI well and you can manage your weight, but more so just eat well. Then you're going to reduce your risk a lot.
1: Sure. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Sorry, so I, just quickly, I've got a creaky knee. Mm. When do I go and get a knee replacement?
3: <laughs> so, <laughs> great question. So, <laughs> a lot of people think when they've got a creaky knee or knee arthritis that knee replacement is inevitable. So, you would consider getting a knee replacement if you have really severe structural disease. So, you have to have an X-ray that looks pretty bad. But that's not a sentence that you have to have it. So, that's important. The second thing is you want to make sure that everything else in your life is sorted so you're not under high psychological distress and lots of other things going Mm -hmm. on that are stressing you out and and making you catastrophize because that might make you have that procedure and it's not actually going to help you because you think it's going to be the answer. And the final thing and perhaps the most important thing is you've actually gone and got the support to do a really good quality exercise program to get stronger, stay stronger and if you're still at the point where that knee is stopping you being able to do what you want to do, then it might be a sensible decision for you to do it. We know that people that go and do a really good quality exercise program who would be on a wait list for a drone placement surgery, for example, three-quarters of them at 12 months have decided they don't want the surgery now. At two years, that's still two-thirds. We don't have longer-term data. Mm. Anecdotally, I see people all the time who go five, ten years and probably never have the surgery despite being at the point where they – if you ask them the question, and we do this in some of our research, if you could have surgery next week and you could just get in and do it, would you do it? They'd they'd say yes. And then they completely change their trajectory after getting the right support.
2: Yeah. Wow. Some really great takeaway messages there, Christian. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, Yeah. Go on forever. (laughs) I've got so many more questions. Yes.
0: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au
2: to find out how.
1: I'm Nurse EpiPen, oh, Professor EpiPen. We've got Professor Kat, Kit Kat, we've got Professor uh, Christian Barton, and Professor Peter Brookner. So there's a lot of, as we said at the start, very heavy professorial group here this morning so now we're going to have a chat with peter brookner who is a sports guru of all shapes and sizes but he's got a particular interest in diet and um, his latest book is called the diabetes plan and i think we might just hand over the mic to professor brookner
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I I guess I've become very interested in in diet over the last 10 years or so. Initially, as a result of uh, my own sort of health experience, um, where I sort of reversed a lot of my metabolic health issues by changing from a uh, traditional uh, low-fat diet into uh, what we term as a low-carb sort of healthy fat uh, diet. So I basically took most uh, or pretty much all the carbs out of my diet and uh, complete and as well as losing a lot of weight like thirteen kilograms in thirteen weeks uh i uh, reverse my pre-diabetes and my fatty liver and my high triglycerides and everything like that. So since then, I've become, I guess, a passionate advocate of, uh, of the role of diet. And uh, the more I sort of look into it, the more I realise how important diet is in, in chronic disease. And um, diabetes is, uh, is probably the number one chronic disease. I mean, type 2 diabetes, I think, is the biggest health problem in this country. And yet uh, we don't talk about it. We don't, uh, you know, we don't seem to want to do anything about it. There are nearly 2 million... Australians who have type 2 diabetes. There are another 2 million that have pre-diabetes and many of them will go on to become uh, diabetes. And I've often sort of thought, why aren't people um, worried about type 2 diabetes? And I think it's because you don't die from type 2 diabetes. Mm. But what you do is type 2 diabetes is is the biggest risk factor for uh, blindness, the biggest risk factor for kidney failure, uh, kidney transplants, dialysis. Uh, it's uh, closely associated with heart disease, um, amputations. The majority of amputations are due to type two diabetes. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is sometimes called type three diabetes, such as the relationship between diabetes and Alzheimer's. So, it's you know it's it doesn't kill you, but it's the thing that actually causes the things that kills you. And uh, and we've got to tackle it. And uh, and it's you know we, we were taught when we were you know medical students when I was going through medicine, that type 2 diabetes is a chronic progressive disease. You're on medications for life. There's nothing we can do about it. But recently, it's been shown quite clearly by our work and and others in the the US and the UK that you can actually put type 2 diabetes into remission with a low-carbohydrate diet. And it sort of makes sense because type 2 diabetes is basically a disease of of, uh, carbohydrate intolerance. You basically don't tolerate Mm -hmm. carbohydrates and yet for years we've encouraged people with type 2 diabetes to have a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet because everyone was so obsessed with the fat issue and we forgot about the, the carbohydrate and it just makes uh, diabetics uh, more likely to uh, to get worse. So, um, you know, it just makes sense. If you if you don't tolerate something, well,
1: let's remove it from the diet and you'll be a whole lot better, you know, duh, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> so just to go back a step or two, What's the difference between type 1 and t- type 2? Right, type 1 is uh, you tend to get at a younger age and
0: it's where your uh, pancreas basically stops working. So it doesn't produce insulin, which is the key hormone in all this. So you have to inject yourself. So back in the bad old days, you died uh, because you, if, you, if you don't uh, have insulin, um, you know you can't cope. But uh, since the discovery of insulin 100 years ago, uh, type 1 diabetics have, uh, have, been, have been managed uh, pretty well um so uh you don't produce or very you produce none or very little of your own insulin. And uh, so you're on injections for the rest of your life. And uh, it's very challenging to control that and uh, and there's challenges with exercise and diet and all sorts of things. Type 2 diabetes tends to... Well, when I was in medical school, uh, which is a long time ago now, it used to be called mature onset diabetes because only sort of quite older people got it. Now, sadly, they've had to change the name because uh, even teenagers now are getting type 2 diabetes. So it's now called, you know, type 1 and type 2 and um, it's basically you become resistant to the insulin that you're producing. So it's in- a disease of insulin resistance. So it's, it's like anything if you, if you have to pump out more and more insulin because you've got a high carbohydrate, high sugar sort of a load, eventually, you know, your body just gets resistant to that. And, and, and ultimately, so in some cases, you stop producing, producing the insulin. So um, your blood sugars go high. And that's the thing we want to try and avoid. It's when your blood sugars are high, they damage... Lots of things, but in particular, they damage the the blood vessels, and particularly the small blood vessels. And so, um, all those diseases I talked about, you know, be it blindness or amputations or heart diseases, are diseases of blood vessels. And uh, and once you've got if you've got running around with high blood sugar, then uh, you're more likely to develop those those diseases. So we want to try and, you know. Work back and, and prevent even type 2 diabetes occurring. But if you've got it, you also then want to keep your blood sugar levels down to normal and uh, control that. And we th- believe that that will probably reduce the, the impact of those, uh, those, those consequences.
1: Um, I think you've got a really good title for your book The Diabetes Plan rather than the diabetes, the pre-plan or the pre-diabetic plan, because it's not a – you don't want to use the word diet. Tell me why not. Well, diet's a full letter word, you know, so we don't (laughs) like full letter words. But um, no, because diet to me is
0: something temporary, you know. I mean, and this is basically a – a, a low carb eating program this is a lifestyle thing you know this is this is what we do for the rest of our lives you know it's not a diet where you i'm going to go on a diet for 12 weeks and try and lose you know x amount of you know kilos and you know then i'll go back to normal No, this is something that you're you're going to do for the rest of your life because it's going to control a it will lose weight but it will also control your your blood sugars which is the important thing and as i said try and reduce the impact of those uh, those you know consequences of, of type 2 diabetes but um but you also lose weight. I mean, uh, type two diabetes and obesity are closely related. Not not everyone with obesity gets type two diabetes. Not everyone with type two diabetes is obese. But there is a there is a link, and it's probably a common denominator of, of poor diet. And uh, if you've got a poor diet, you're likely to be both obese and uh, and type two uh, type two diabetic. So um, it's really important, uh, you know, to to reduce the amount of uh, of carbs. And so. There's two types of carbohydrates. I mean, one is sugars, so I think we all get that. You know, we all get, well, okay, we probably should be having too much sugar and, you know, too many bottles of Coke and uh, things like that. You know, when you've got 16 teaspoons of, uh, of uh, sugar in a 600ml bottle of Coke, you know, that's probably not a great uh, great idea. Um, but, um, sorry, I put that, she just hit her <laughs> bottle of Coke there. Um, but um, where, you know, it's, it's not just sugars, it's also uh, starches and uh, starches that are contained in things like you know, rice and bread and, and uh, cereals and pasta and, and potato and so on but starches are just basically glucose molecules stuck together and that when you ingest a starch your digestive system breaks down and it's absorbed as glucose exactly the same glucose as you get when you have uh, have sugar uh, the only difference is it's absorbed a little bit more slowly because of it, it takes the time to digest it. But it's still glucose. So um, that's the thing that people don't understand is that it's, uh, it's the starches as well that you have to reduce in type 2 diabetes. And some people say, oh, no, but I couldn't do that. I couldn't give up bread. Well, yeah, you can give up bread. And there's also low-carb breads and you know, sourdough breads and things like that that, that have reduced uh, impact. People say, oh, I couldn't give up rice. Well, I, I have cauliflower rice, which is... Even tastier than, than rice. And uh, people say, I oh, but I love my pasta. Well you have you know, zucchini noodle pasta, you know, which is just as nice. So there are alternatives to everything. It's you know people say, Oh, I couldn't possibly do that diet. And well, I can tell you from experience I've been doing it for ten years and it's it's easy. Sure. You know, it's very easy. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
2: I just have a question. Um, Peter was talking a little bit about, I guess, the carbohydrates and the relationship there with diabetes and um, talking, I guess, about substitutes for um, different, I guess, sources of carbohydrates. I guess as a um, eating disorder psychologist, um, I'm just wondering, I guess, it kind of... Raises some little flags in my mind about talking about dietary substitutes and carbs and the conversation around diet and carbs, etc., and the very complex relationship between weight and health. Um, I was just wondering if you could um, tell us a little about who this is, who you rec- who you would recommend this for, or any kind of disclaimers you might have about, I guess, weight, body image, and the yeah. psychology there. Yeah.
0: Look at the the whole. Uh eating disorder thing is very as you know i don't need to tell you again it's, it's very complex and so on so uh um uh, but you know there, there's been a little bit of work done on on uh, on low carbohydrate diets in, in eating disorders and and uh you know the, the good thing about a low carbohydrate diet is that it uh, it can control your weight um uh without feeling hungry and um uh so it it, it you know there are some people who who Claim that it's helpful in in eating disorder, well. but I'm not going to go into go into that. Sure. I mean, what what we're really uh, looking at is is that there's three groups of people really that uh, that benefit from this sort of uh, dietary approach yep. uh, that we have in the diabetes plan. Firstly, it's obviously people with type two diabetes, mm-hmm. so that's uh, that's a no-brainer. They need to uh, to keep their their blood glucose levels uh, under control and uh, and hopefully put their diabetes into remission. Which uh, currently we're running at about sixty percent people into remission in our defeat diabetes yep. program. Wow. Um, so the second group is those with the, what we call pre-diabetic.
2: Yes. So, yep.
0: so they're people whose blood sugars have come up a little bit, uh, but they're not quite in the sort of type 2 uh, definition yet. But uh, we believe that you know they're already heading down that, that track. Mm-hmm. They're insulin resistant. They've probably got a fatty liver. They might have mm-hmm. high blood pressure and so on. And so uh, that's the second group that uh, benefit from this. So they, they, you know, that's a warning sign. And, uh, and unless you take that warning sign, they may well go on to develop type 2 diabetes. And I guess the third group is just those who... Are concerned about maybe they have a family history of type two diabetes, or they have either relations, or or they have uh, people they know, and uh, uh, or people who just want to eat more in a more healthy manner. And it's not just uh, diabetes; you know, it's all those other diseases that that can uh, can benefit. I mean, it's interesting uh, what Christian was saying before about uh, about arthritis, and uh, it's amazing how many people when they go low carb and and remove all the processed foods out of their diet, which is really the key to it all. It's just uh, eating real food and just getting rid of the processed food. They uh, they come and tell you that. Uh, oh, by the way, doc, you know, my, uh, my knee pain's gone or my hip pain's gone or my shoulder pain's gone. It's, uh, it's quite incredible. And that's because it's an anti-inflammatory sort of a diet. So sugar is an inflammatory, glucose is an inflammatory and so are, are vegetable oils, you know, the, uh, what we... So basically processed foods contain sugar and vegetable oils usually. So if you avoid processed foods, then you're going to go a long way down the track to, uh, to it. So I have this great expression, JERF, J-E-R-F, sure. just eat real food.
2: All right, <laughs> nice.
1: Simple. Um uh, Peter, can I just ask you briefly, what are your thoughts on Ozempic, this new injectable yep. diet loss thing? Yes. Yeah,
0: the new uh a new drug. Um, seems to be effective. It it basically reduces appetite, so uh so is a very effective weight loss drug and, and probably quite effective in, in type two diabetes. There are a few problems with it. A, it's incredibly expensive uh for a start, it's uh, and it's hard to uh hard to get, it's limited in supply. Um and uh, you've got to inject it, um, so in, you know regular injections. Um, it's associated with a lot of side effects, a lot of nausea, and uh, so on. And there's also concerns about longer-term pancreatitis and, and maybe even pancreatic cancer. We don't have long-term uh, data on on, uh, on this particular drug. But the biggest thing is that uh, once you're on it, you're on it for life. And uh, if you go off it, you're going to go go back to where you were, as far as your weight, and your diabetes. So it's a really a life sentence, and you can be just as effective with diet as you can with a zempic. It's a lot cheaper, a lot less side effects, and uh, you know you don't have to. Um, you know, if you go off it, you know you you won't just sort of put
1: it straight back on, so because you won't go off it. Um, Oh, I wish we had more time. I've got a question that's popped up. What about glucosamine? Glucosamine. Christian, would you like to answer that one?
3: Yeah. So glucosamine's a supplement that you can take a lot of people take with arthritis the evidence suggests it might have a very small benefit compared to placebos a lot of those trials are sponsored by the nutraceutical companies so whether we trust them or not it's interesting when you're thinking about things like this never let them replace what we've talked about today about lifestyle looking after your diet doing exercise getting support with that and then if you're thinking about taking the treatment does it have any harms and if it doesn't then it might be worth a try um, and see how you go
2: yeah Great, thanks. Um, thank you so much, Associate Professor Christian Barton and Professor Peter Bruckner. We've really enjoyed you having um, having you. Sorry, in the the studio, it's been a pleasure chatting with you.
1: Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the
0: podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.